There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you found this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Jessica Cording. Jessica is a registered dietitian, health coach, and author with a passion for helping people simplify their wellness routine by building sustainable, healthy habits. Through her writing, consulting, public speaking, and counseling, she works with individuals, corporations, and the media to help make drama-free, healthy living approachable and enjoyable. She's the author of The Little Book of Game Changers, 50 Healthy Habits for Managing Stress and Anxiety, and her recently released second book, The Farewell Tour, A Caregiver's Guide to Stress Management, Sane Nutrition, and Better Sleep. Jessica also runs the Drama-Free Healthy Living podcast and has recorded guided meditations for Simple Habit. She also has created educational content for Caravan Wellness. According as part of the Mind Body Green Collective, and a frequent contributor to various media outlets such as Forbes, Shape, and more. Additionally, as a big believer in the mental and physical benefits of exercise, she's a certified Pilates mat instructor. Jess Cording, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Oh, thank you so much for having me. No, thanks for your time. So Jess, you're a registered dietitian, a wellness authority, and an author. Where did your passion for health and wellness come from? You know, I grew up surrounded by sick relatives. You know, I, from a young age, I watched various family members struggle with different types of cancer, diabetes, heart disease, uh, mental health conditions, addiction. So, um, I, you know, I, I, from an early age, I was exposed to all these things that can go wrong in the mind and the body. And as I got older, I wanted to understand better how these problems occur and what we can do to help prevent them and treat them. You're also an integrative nutrition health coach. Explain to us what an integrated nutrition health coach is and how what you do is different than other health coaches. Yeah, so, you know, I had been a registered dietitian for about five years when I decided to further my education. You know, I grew up exposed to a lot of complementary and alternative therapies. My mother, um, when I was, I guess, 10, 11, became a certified hypnotherapist and then later became a psychotherapist. So, you know, I grew up learning about all these other treatment modalities beside, beyond Western medicine. And, you know, I, but I went very clinical with my education because I think I, I wanted that hard science background, you know, being able to practice medical nutrition therapy, but integrative nutrition, health coaching, that's more looking at the whole person, you know, the whole picture, not just what food they're eating, not just their labs. It's more about the mind, body, spirit, guiding a person through behavior changes and really being there to support them, provide accountability so, you know, in addition to talking about food, I speak with my patients and clients about movement, stress management, sleep, emotional and mental well-being. It's, it's all part of the big picture. So I promise to get back to your career, but let's talk about your latest book and then we can dive into some other topics. Great. So latest book, The Farewell Tour, A Caregiver's Guide to Stress Management, Sane Nutrition and Better Sleep was released just last month. How did you choose the title? and specifically the farewell tour? So the title, so the, the book is really a book that I could have used when, you know, I was, when I was 31 years old, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and my family just threw our lives upside down to care for him. You know, it's one of those cancers where um, it tends to be found after it's progressed quite a bit and prognosis is not great. So we, we were told right out of the gate, you know, your time is pretty limited. And we really had no idea how limited. So we just went into sprint mode. And um, I, I remember looking at the time for different you know, resources for caregivers, especially young caregivers, because I was you know, living alone in New York at the time. I was running. I had seven different income streams that was struggling. It was um, a very, it was a tough time. And I, I needed to be present for my father, but keep it together. So um, I, you know, I wanted to create a self-care guide for caregivers. But it's, you know, my father had a, a very irreverent sense of humor. That was one of his, his best qualities. Um, and when I interviewed people for this book, everyone brought this up about him. But he actually 
so I was at his house one day and, you know, he's, he's on the phone. He's unwrapping an ice cream bar as he hangs up. And I saw him chuckle to himself. And he says, you know, once they find out you're dying, everybody wants a piece of you. So we started calling it the farewell tour and I kind of, it was a working title, but it stuck. So I just, I went with it. We were talking a few days ago and you said playlists and specifically music playlists were your family's love language. Would you share that story with us in the playlist that you put together while you're writing the farewell tour? Um, and that's actually how my parents met. They, my mother was a program director at her college radio station. My father was working at, I don't know, I think it was Polydor Records at the time doing promotions. And so he would send her records to play on the air. So growing up, there was always music playing in my house, always things that my father, you know, projects he was working on. And um, he had, a, he would make playlists for every occasion, every holiday, birthdays, just because, and it was just part of what we did. I mean, I grew up making, you know, first like mixed tapes, mixed CDs. I don't know if anyone remembers those, um, you know, playlists on different streaming services. And so when I started to work on this book, I, I knew that I wanted there to be some kind of musical component. And a playlist was the first thing that came to mind. Um, all my projects have, have soundtracks. So this was definitely no exception. So to put it together, you know, my father was very specific about, social media and after he, he was very clear that after he passed away he didn't want um he didn't want his facebook account to stay active he didn't want his instagram to be active any of that he's like i you know, don't want to be an effing memorial page is what he said but he wanted to leave a spotify account um accessible because he had made so many playlists and he wanted to be able to share those with us so i put together songs that he was listening to during the 15 month course of his illness songs that I was listening to and put them all together into one playlist. So throughout the book, every chapter has suggested listening and I have the whole playlist written out um, at the end and you can find it on Spotify. So I actually did make the playlist for others to listen to as well. And where's the Spotify? What's the name of the list on Spotify? So I think it's the farewell tour book playlist. Um, and Jessica Cording author is the, the artist name or the, the account name, I believe. Thank you for that. So Jess, you provide lots of nutrition and lifestyle tips for caregivers, which we'll talk about later. But you also interviewed, to your point about your dad's career, a number of musicians and music industry professionals about life on the road. We always hear wild stories of excess when the subject of musicians on the road comes up. Are those stories exaggerations or the exceptions to the rule? So I think both. You know, the artists I spoke with, you know, definitely, you know, would allude to having had times of excess or people in their circle, you know, um, engaging in behaviors that would fit under that category. But in terms of longevity in an industry like that, which demands so much of not just the artists, but all the people supporting them on the road, you know, they all shared that they had to develop different techniques for staying well, you know, whether that was uh, giving up drinking or really prioritizing sleep or exercise or, you know, having a, a lot of them share different remedies with me of things like keeping their vocal cords in good shape or dealing with, um, you know, keeping their energy up. So I, I, you know, I think there's some truth to some of the stories, you know, I did hear some pretty, if I had had more word counts allowed in my contract, I would have shared a lot more of the stories in that realm. But I think a lot of it comes down to, it's a job, you know, and um, yes, there is that glamorous aspect to it, but day to day, it's it's a grind and your voice is an instrument that you need to nurture. And I did find that, you know, the people that I spoke with who've just been at this for, you know, decades, you know, it's really about taking care of that, of that instrument and keeping it together and having healthy habits to do so. So you interviewed a real who's who of music industry people. Who are some of the musicians and others interviewed and why did you choose them? Yeah. So, you know, I was, I really wanted to speak with people uh, primarily with whom I had a personal connection through my father, whether people I had grown up going to their shows and, you know, knew them through there or people that I knew he was very close to. I really, um, you know, it was, it was a little tricky because I would have loved to include say more female voices. But I will say, you know, working, um, you know, my dad spent most of his career at Columbia Records. And at the time he was most active in his career, you know, rock and roll is a very like white male dominated, uh, you know, uh, genre. I don't know how much has changed there. 
But um, so most of, you know, you will notice that it was a lot of white men of a certain age. You know, I did, I do address that in, in the, in the introduction, because I'm always keeping an eye towards how I can do better, but I wanted there to be that personal connection. So, you know, some of the people I spoke with that, um, you know, maybe your listeners know them. Um, you know, I spoke with uh, John Mellencamp, um, Elvis Costello, uh, Willie Nile, and then as well as, you know, um, Paul Rappaport is a music industry professional who I, I mean, he is just a veteran of the industry and you know, one of my father's closest friends through the years. And he, he would, he was on the road with so many bands, you know, in the 60s, 70s and really shared, talk about very interesting stories. I'm excited for when his book comes out. But um, you know, I spoke with uh, DJ Lee, who's a, a singer and producer whom I've known since I was 16 when his, his band he and his bandmates, they had a band called Scratch Track. They used to stay in our basement, you know, when they were passing through town. And uh, I spoke with Billy King, an artist who's based out of Massachusetts and, you know, worked very closely with my dad for a time who, you know, he, Billy knew James Taylor, someone else my father worked with, um, you know, and Billy and Willie Nile wrote together. So there's a lot of like cross, um, you know, uh, a lot of connections, you know, throughout these people, um, you know, collaborating with each other. Um, I spoke with Sarah Lee Guthrie, whom I was introduced to by Billy Keen. And, you know, Sarah actually had the unique experience of touring with her father at times. So it was a really interesting um, extra level to really hear, 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 hear her experience as well. And what did you learn from the interviews that surprised you the most? You know, it was interesting. I think from growing up around the industry, you know, I think that there were not that many things that I personally found surprising, but I think things that people reading the book who may not be as familiar would find surprising are that, you know, when an artist goes to a show in different cities, you know, very often they're not exploring the city, you know, they're showing up to the venue and like, you know, doing their sound check and then going back to the hotels and going to the show and getting on the bus and going to the next place. Um, you know, I think something that might surprise others as well is that, um, you know, a lot of people give up drugs and alcohol because, you know, that it's not really about the, the party, you know, if you want to be successful in that industry. So I think those were those were a few things that I think might um, might stand out to people as well, that it is, it's, it's a job. In, in addition to your two books, you do a lot of writing for a variety of publications. Did that come naturally for you? Do you enjoy writing or do you decide that that was something you had to do to reach more people to become more successful? I mean, honestly, sometimes I feel like I became a registered dietitian so I could write. <laughs> like I, growing up, it, you know, it's always been the thing that I do when I should be doing other things. Um, I, you know, I learned how to write when I was, I don't know, seven and just haven't stopped. I used to get in trouble for school for writing when I should have been paying attention. Um, sorry, all to my calculus teacher. But, you know, I think um, I didn't start writing professionally till I was in grad school. You know, I, I published creative works under pen names and stuff for, for ages, but um, I, I remember having to, uh, I w went through a breakup right before I started my dietetic internship. And I suddenly, I got the apartment and I had to figure out how to cover the rent, you know, a one bedroom in Manhattan. And I, I was, you know, in school, I was about to be working full time as an intern in the hospital. I was like, well, what can I do to make up this money? And I, I, I could write. So I just started pitching editors of so many different publications and saying, do you guys take student work? And most of them said no. But if you said no, but send us your portfolio and some samples and let's see. And they took a chance on me. And that was really how it started. That's awesome. Your latest book refers to, quote, sane nutrition, and it's even in the title. What's your definition of sane nutrition and how the rest of us achieve it? So when I think about sane nutrition, I really think about the basic nutrition that's going to help us feel like a functional human. So the, the things that I wanted people to get most from the book is that really stabilizing your blood sugar is one of the most important things you can do to support well-being. Being. You know, when our blood sugar is out of balance, we feel uh, less energetic. We experience mood swings. Our stress response is compromised. Our immune response is compromised. That can influence food choices and help us, you know, when our sugar's all over the place, you know, people are more likely to struggle with cravings. 
So I, I shared that having a good balance of protein, fat, and fiber spread through the day at meals and snacks is really important. You know, I think that's a really key aspect of staying nutrition. We live in a culture of extremes, and I see them very often in, in my work that people hyper-focus on what's the latest research, what's the magic food that's going to, you know, have this magic desire, you know, weight loss or, uh, you know, longevity. And, you know, you're always, people are always looking for the hot new thing. And, you know, I've been doing this work for over a decade, and I just find that it really comes back to uh, listening to the body and inner wisdom and supporting clear communication between the gut and the brain. So, you know, I think a lot of it is just having those balanced meals. And, you know, when you talk about same nutrition, something I think that's also really important is making the best choice in that particular situation, you know, letting go of the idea of perfection and just really looking at what's going to help you feel better in that moment. You know, and I, I come at it from a functional standpoint because that's my training, thinking what's going to help someone feel physically better and function better. Um, but there's also that, that emotional side too. We can't ignore that. Um, but yeah. Balancing your blood sugar through balanced meals, uh, staying hydrated, being careful with alcohol and caffeine. Um, I do get a little bit into things such as supporting gastrointestinal health or gut health, you know, through having adequate fiber, uh, minimal, you know, processed foods, minimal sugars, um, hydration, movement. Uh, but then, you know, I also talk a little bit about foods and habits, lifestyle approaches to managing inflammation, because we do know that that is a core uh, core root of many different disease states. So, you know, I think the, that the same nutrition is really about making those balanced choices that's going to help you get through your day and be able to function. And just the opposite of same nutrition, it seems like just about everyone who has wanted to lose weight has tried every fad diet and exercise routine under the sun. Why do those fail us? I mean, the diet culture is, you know, it's a huge industry and it's designed to fail people. You know, I think so often I see people share that they, they think that they failed at a diet, but that diet failed them. It was designed to fail them. That's how these different companies make their money, you know, because if someone, you know, I think that what happens is a lot of the marketing around these different diets, it plays on people's emotions. It, it makes them feel that they don't know how to do it. So they need this pill, this supplement, this, uh, this plan. But somewhere along the way, um, they don't get that messaging of like, oh, hey, here's how you listen to your body. Here's the basis of nourishing yourself. You know, it doesn't have to be crazy. But the industry thrives on people feeling like they're not doing it right and they can't be trusted. And so that they need to keep turning to this thing or that thing. And that maybe this will be the thing that works this time. And it's usually not. So if they're telling me guaranteed to lose up to 20 pounds in 30 days, a little asterisk next to it and a big disclaimer, I shouldn't believe it. <laughs> right. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> so Jess, you triumphed over a childhood eating disorder, but what you said you struggled to let go of was what you call the family sport of wearing busy like a badge. Why was being busy, so integral to your family, and why did it matter to you? That's a great question. You know, I think that there's a few ways to approach it. I mean, you know, I can only speak from my own experience. You know, I think I observed with my father that he was passionate about his work. You know, he, he just found his way into this, this field that demanded a lot of him. So I think for him, a lot of that busyness was more just incidental or more just an extension of his work. But I will say my, my mother's side of the family, you know, there's something else going on there. And that was, I think, what trickled down to me. Um, you know, one thing I will say in my family, we do tend to use staying busy as a means of coping with difficult things. And, you know, I, I learned really early on that alcohol was not going to be a thing for me, was never interested in drugs, but I could stay busy. Um, and I think for me, when it became a real problem, um, you know, and I do touch on this briefly in the farewell tour, but I am a survivor of sexual assault. And the thing that really got me through, um, especially the early, you know, very early days um, when the PTSD was really debilitating was, well, I'm somehow going to, you know, get over this and I'm going to get really good grades and get a scholarship and get out of here. <laughs> like that was sort of a, a goal for me. And that really... It car it, you know, it carried over into adulthood and just really using productivity as a numbing agent at times. 
know, and I think for me, I, I had to get really honest with myself about that, you know, where people, you know, we live in a culture that really prides um, and rewards doing a lot, accomplishing a lot. And it's easy to get caught in that cycle. So, you know, that's something I've had to do a lot of work with being, you know, talking to myself about, okay, is this like something you really want to do? Or are you doing this because you want to avoid some uncomfortable emotion? So I think there is definitely, in, in my experience, a uh, coping mechanism aspect to the busyness. And how long did it take you to recognize you didn't have to always be busy? And then how long did it take you to do something about it? Oh, wow. You know, I think it, for me, there wasn't one aha moment. And I will say I still come up against it sometimes where I notice I'm like the impulse is there. And, you know, I think it really, if I'm being honest, it wasn't until I moved out of New York City that I started being able to um, like slow down a little bit and catch myself more. But I think, yes, um, you know, I do, I, I think there's always going to be some element there of, you know, just recognizing that that's in my nature, you know, that that's something that I have to be mindful of. So, um, you know, things that helped me were just acknowledging, like, okay, like, we know that this is a thing that you are likely to do, like, you know, might it serve you better instead of trying to accomplish all these different tasks while you're homesick from work? Um, maybe you'd be better served by lying down. What does your wellness routine look like? And why does that work for you? I mean, I think that our wellness routines, they evolve as we evolve, you know? I mean, I'm in a season of my life where it's really about um, simplicity and just focusing on just nourishing the mind and the body and reducing stress, you know? I uh, just came off of a, a time where I was had a lot of external stressors, so it's been a lot, of, a lot about... Um, moving my body in ways to support strength and flexibility and mobility, but not burning out. Um, you know, I I will say one tool I found very useful is just um, doing a little bit of like meal planning and meal prep. You know, I usually plan meals um, for the plan dinners for the week, usually like on a Thursday, and then I know what to shop for on Friday. Maybe spend you know hour or two on the weekend preparing a few things. Um, you know, meditation that is a game changer. I always see. You know, when in the morning, I'll usually do a quick meditation before I see patients. You know, that's kind of a non-negotiable for me because I am a bit of an energy sponge. Um, and then another big one is journaling. You know, if I if I don't put pen to paper at some point uh, in the morning and in the evening, it just, it doesn't feel right. So I do a few different affirmations and kind of have a little journaling structure in the morning. And then in the evening, I do a, a brain dump before I go to bed. So that way the chatter doesn't keep me up all night. So fairly structured. Structure helps. For me, it does. Not everyone's like that, but I like some light structure to give, to give some, some sense of consistency. A moment ago, you mentioned the mind-body. You're an adherent to the mind-body-spirit approach to healthy living built on the power of small changes in daily habits. In fact, as I mentioned in the introduction, your first book's title is The Little Book of Game Changers, 50 Healthy Habits for Managing Stress and Anxiety. Take us on your journey. What was your spark of inspiration to write it? And how did you decide which healthy habits were the right ones to include and which ones to leave out? So at that time, when I first got the idea to, to write that book, you know, I was, I was doing a lot of corporate wellness. I was actually doing counseling at a TV network for their, um, for their New York office. And, you know, the small changes is something that's always been a part of the work that I do. I don't really know how that started, but I would hear my patients and say over and over, oh, that, that breakfast thing was a game changer. This yoga thing was a game changer. And I was riding on the subway home one night and it was, it was, I was going through one of those really tough times. My father was so sick and I was just wiped out. And I just, but I, and I was thinking back on the day and I was just thinking about my, my, you know, the appointments I had had and how often game changer came up. And I said to myself, what if I put together a little book of game changers? And I remember I, I pulled out my phone. I texted my friend. I was like, would you read a book called The Little Book of Game Changers? And they're like, uh, yeah, sure. But I, I connected with the woman who had become my agent a couple weeks after that, um, just randomly and shared that idea with her. And it actually started more generally. And we got an offer on that, that first version of the book, but it just didn't feel right. And I said to her, it's like, I think this really needs to be more about anxiety. I don't know why, but I think we need to turn down this offer, Ruth Teal's proposal and 
see what happens. And within a, you know, so we did that. And within a few months, we had a couple new offers. And that became the, the book that is now out there in the world. That's awesome. We've been talking to Jessica Cording, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guest today is Jessica Cording, registered dietitian, health coach, wellness expert, and author. For the break, Jess, we were talking before about your little book of game changers. What flipped the switch for you about the value of small changes over making drastic changes to improve your health and wellness? I think just seeing the progress that my patients and clients made when they were focusing on just one or a few small changes at a time, you know, because... What I've seen again and again is when someone tries to overhaul everything, you know, three weeks in, they're like, oh, F it. I just have no willpower. This is never going to happen for me. But the folks who give themselves a chance to focus on one to maybe two or three little changes at a time, you know, they not only build healthy habits that support their goals and get them to where they want to be, but they build their confidence along the way. And that's so valuable. You used to let stress run your life. What was your aha moment that you need to make a change? Oh, which one? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so one that I share, I think I shared this in the little book of Game Changers. Um, it might have been the farewell tour, but it, it happened around the, the farewell tour time of my life. I, as I said, I was juggling seven different income streams. I was exhausted. And I was living, I was living in a part of New York where I, I lived across Central Park from the hospital that I worked at. So I would take the Crosstown bus a lot or I'd walk, depending, but there was a yoga studio on the route. So I would sometimes go to yoga on my way home from work. And I remember one night, you know, going, going to yoga after my shift. And I was like, oh, this is great. I'm taking good care of myself. I'm going to yoga. I fell asleep in Downward Dog. I just fell flat on my face. And I was like, well, all right, something is not working here. Um, so that, that was definitely a big aha moment that something needed to change. Because, you know, that trying to just... You do have to rest sometimes. What physiological changes happen in and to our bodies when we're under that much stress? Oh, I mean, there's stress is powerful stuff. <laughs> um, so here's what I'll say. There's a few types of stress. There's good stress called eustress, you know, where that's the stress where, you know, it helps you kind of give a, a presentation you're really stressed about or perform, you know, in an, in an athletic event. Um but then the, the other, the, the negative stress, you know, when you're getting flooded with all these 
negative, you know, these, all these stress hormones without the benefit of like endorphins say, um, you know, that's when you're going to experience, you know, sleep disturbances, digestive issues. Um, You know, when it becomes long-term, you know, you're looking at low grade chronic inflammation, which is a root cause for so many different conditions. You know, we're looking at things like heart disease, weight changes, but then mental health issues, depression, anxiety, um, skin, skin issues, hormonal issues, infertility, uh, it's like you name an organ system, you know, it's like something, something's covered. And, you know, when you're under a lot of stress, you know, your body just can't function properly, you know, uh, your immune system tanks, you know, so that makes it so much harder to just uh, fight off everyday things. So it's just a time when someone just doesn't feel like themselves physically, emotionally, they might not feel like they look like themselves. Stress is, is, is really tough on the body and the mind. And here's the million-dollar question of the day, maybe your Powerball question. Where does stress come from? What's its source? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I, I roll my eyes whenever I hear a provider say to reduce your stress because I'm just, you know, I'm thinking, what planet are, are they living on? Like, I feel like every time you, you know, look at your phone, look, look at your computer, go walk out the door, look at a newspaper, like there's something to be stressed about. I mean, some of the most common stressors are related to money, fine, uh, you know, so um, money, work, uh, global concerns, political concerns, family concerns, health concerns. You know, there's so many different things that can stress us out. You know, I think we all have a mix of things that are unique to us, but then things that we're experiencing alongside so many other people in the world. So it basically just comes from daily living. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's why having tools to manage stress is so important. We maybe uh, can't do much to reduce the stress coming at us, but we can develop tools to manage that our response to that stress. In the first half of the show, you mentioned Eastern culture. In Eastern culture, I mean Buddhist thought. There's a term called monkey mind that's derived from the idea that our minds naturally tend to be restless, uncontrolled, unsettled, and indecisive. That certainly seems like it would add a lot to our stress. How do you... And how should we tame a case of monkey mind? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. That will, you know, some will work for, for some people better than others. I think it's good to see what resonates with you. I mean, some of the tools I've seen work best for, you know, for people I've worked with over the years, um, meditation, or just taking a deep breath and first acknowledging what's happening. I think that's probably the most important thing, just recognizing like, okay, we're uh, the monkey mind thing is, is taken over. Like we need to stop this. Um, so meditation, whether that is standard, you know, actual like sitting with your eyes closed, breathing, that's one version, but it can be a moving meditation, a walk, doing some activity mindfully. Um, I'm a big fan of journaling. I know I said that, but I think that journaling can be a very useful tool to kind of, you know, get to the heart of what's really bothering you. And that gives you some clues as to what you can do about it. You know, I think acknowledging what you can and can't control, that also can be incredibly helpful because you know what to take off your plate and for the things that you can do something about, can make a plan to address them. But, you know, I exercise, I think, is a great way to kind of get out of the, uh, get out of a funk if your your brain starts going places that you're like, we don't, this is not helpful right now, you know, um, and that could be formal exercise. That could be literally just standing up and shaking and moving around. There's so many different versions. Um, even just things that can put your energy in a better direction. You know, I have a patient, she likes to look at funny cat videos to, you know, raise her vibration. <laughs> uh, other people might use aromatherapy. There's so many different tools. But I think the most important step is to first recognize that that's happening and acknowledge it. You've mentioned journaling a couple of times, which obviously you're an author as well, so that I guess is fairly natural for you. But I'm amazed at the number of articles I've seen over the last, I'll say, six or 12 months about journaling and how important it is for your mental health to really just let that be sort of your, I'll say, therapist, for lack of a better word, because it's between you, your pen, and your notebook. And it's just you getting it out there. Nobody else is going to see it, but just to kind of actually use it as a release point for you in terms of what you're thinking, the things you're feeling, what's bothering you, what you're happy about. And so... I just appreciate you raising that a couple of times because it is something conceptually so simple, yet so few yeah. of us do it. So simple and really low cost too. <laughs> it is. You've mentioned your dad passing away after his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, and now you counsel cancer survivors and other high-risk individuals. Aside from the obvious point that they're survivors, what similarities do cancer survivors share? Is it their mindset, some genetic advantage, their treatment regimen, 
You know, so anybody who is diagnosed with cancer is called a survivor from day one. You know, it's, uh, but I think what's really important, no matter where someone is at on that journey, is, you know, obviously mindset plays a big role. You know, our thoughts have a lot to do with our actions, our emotions, you know, just your experience, you know, your quality of life. So I think um, dealing with your emotions in a way that works for you, you know, I think another important thing I think is asking for and accepting help. I, I know a lot of people struggle with that, but really having, you know, a support network can make a really big difference. Uh, something that I see come up a lot in, in my work in this area is food fears. Um, the cancer community, like it, the internet is the wild west of health information. And I do spend a lot of time doing education on evidence-based recommendations for what to eat, what not to eat, you know. And I, I think it's something that I, I think is really important to know is that it's really about following an 85-15 approach to healthy eating, especially when we're looking at risk reduction. You know, I'm very careful not to ever say that any one food or style of eating can prevent or cure cancer because we we can't say that. You know, someone could be doing everything right and they can still get cancer. And that's not fair, but that is just, a, that just happens. And, you know, I, I think that we have a lot of data on things that can play a supporting role in risk reduction and feeling better. But an overall healthy diet, it's really about overall patterns. You know, day to day, there can be room for little indulgences or treats that help you feel like you're living your life. Because when you take away all of the things that bring you pleasure, that can really degrade the quality of life and make it harder to stay on track with overall healthy eating habits in the first place. So that's something that I think is really important to, to be mindful of, that you don't have to give up all the things that bring you pleasure and just nibble on kale and quinoa all day. There is a balance. You <laughs> Thank know? God. So you've made the point that there's a lot of noise that distracts people from how they feel or should feel about their bodies. And that causes them to overthink what they should be doing to improve their health. How do we quiet that noise and listen to the right voices? Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many ways this can show up for somebody. You know, we were talking earlier about chronic dieting. Um, you know, that's an example of you know, when someone doesn't trust their own body to tell them what, what feels good, you know, and I think it can be that simple. And I don't mean to say that it is easy if this is something that's new to you and you've been, you know, out of touch with your body your entire adult life, right? But I think just starting to get curious and pay attention to what foods and beverages make you feel great, what makes you feel really crummy, um, you know, I think... And, you know, it's interesting because we live in an age where there's so much information available for free on the Internet or there's all these different apps and coaches and the coaching culture. I could say a ton about that, but I won't. Um, and I think sometimes with all the, the social media, like the, the expert voices sometimes get lost or drowned out. Um, and what's, you know, the stuff that's extreme or very, you know, um, soundbite uh, sound or Words like that's what tends to stand out a lot for people or, you know, there's still the desire for the quick fix. But if you're someone who is struggling with finding a, you know, healthy balance with your eating and you feel like your relationship with food is not in a good place, you know, there are uh, licensed professionals like registered dietitians, psychotherapists, you know, who can help you really, you know, learn what to eat to support your unique health goals and support you in your mental work along the way. And I, I think that it's important to, you know, seek help, ask for help, accept help. And yes, I mean, sometimes these services are more expensive upfront than say like a, you know, a supplement or a you know, diet plan you, you download. But the thing is they're, they're designed, you know, it, it's not like, um, you know, you're designed to have 30 days of a program and then, you know, good luck, you know, when you're working with a registered dietitian or a therapist, you know, who maybe specializes in, in um, food and different relationships with food, eating disorders, potentially, and there's many different types of eating disorders. You know, I think that it's an investment in your future and that, you know, that period of time where you might be working with that professional, you're setting yourself up for a lifetime of knowing how to take care of yourself. So if you are someone who struggles and you feel like you can't do it on your own, you don't have to. There are licensed professionals who can help you. So what you're saying is we're not alone. There is somebody exactly. to re reach out. As I look at your approach to health and wellness, 
And sorry if you hear my dog, Zeke just came in and found a squeaky toy. So I'm not sure if that's being picked up. One of the joys of doing this from the home office. So I looked at your approach to health and wellness. It comes down to a couple of threes. The first three are in your approach, mind, body, and spirit. And the second three I see are nutrition, exercise, and sleep. How do each of those three fit together and complement each other? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to, to group them. I mean, you know, the mind, body, and spirit, they are all interconnected. You know, if you are out of balance in one of those areas, it can really impact how you feel in the other areas. So I, and I see this a lot. People neglect, often someone is so focused on the physical body, but if they're not addressing maybe like a deep-seated trauma, you know, um, and I definitely have experience with that of ignoring it and thinking that, well, maybe maybe these other, you know, physical health issues are just, just, you know, something I should work harder at. And, you know, when you do the inner work and acknowledge maybe some of the emotional things or the, you know, spiritual stuff going on below the surface, you know, that is really what you need to, to heal more fully. Um, but then when you're looking at, say, like exercise, nutrition, and sleep, you know, on the surface, those all seem like very physical body things, right? And to a degree, they are. But when you're not, you know, someone... Someone can be eating well, exercising, but if their sleep is not in a good place, like it's really hard to to feel well and really achieve your goals. And you know, when you're not well nourished um, in terms of what you're eating, how your sleep is, you know, what kind of movement you're doing, you know, that's going to impact your mental health and your spiritual health. So they they all do fit together. And different times we might be more in balance with one than another. Like we're not all always in balance with all of these things at the same time, and that's okay. Um, but just to, to notice that if you have an area that goes out of balance, you know, what's a few little steps you can take to feel more balanced in that area, I think is really important. We've talked about the importance of sleep and you've mentioned meditation and how important that is to you. How important is rest, decompressing, meditating, you know, couch potato, doing nothing to our mental and physical health? Yeah, I mean, if I could go back and give my younger self some advice, it would be to rest more. And I'm always having to remind myself of this. Like, like I am, I am, I think I accepted, yes, I accepted the, um, the book offer for Little Book of Game Changers literally the day after my father passed away. I just was like, no, I, I just want to get to work. I need something to focus on. And I, I look back sometimes and I'm like, should I have waited a few weeks? Like, um, but I think that there's a balance, right? You know, I, I have plenty of people I've worked with over the years who are like, I just need to get off the couch. I can't get motivated. You know, they'll say, you know, that motivation is a real struggle when it comes to, you know, movement and getting started with things. And I, I think it really is kind of looking at, you know, are you in a place where are you resting enough? You know, I think that that's really important because when we don't rest, our, our body doesn't get to repair itself and that can degrade our immunity, our, our mind, our body. It's, it's not a good thing to never rest. Um, but that said, if somebody is um, not really doing anything to challenge themselves or they're not making efforts to take care of themselves, you know, that can also have negative effects. But I think, you know, but to answer your question, you know, is decompression important you know, should that be something we're prioritizing? Absolutely. Um, I'm happy to see that it's talked about more than I feel like it was maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, and I, I know my generation, you know, the, the girl boss uh, era where it's all about, you know, the, the many side hustles and all that stuff. And like, I still sometimes feel like I'm coming down from like the entrepreneur hamster wheel. Um, just the, the number that it, that will do on your mental and physical body. Um, you know, the, the conversation about rest and decompression it's an important one. So I think that, yes, like if whatever works for you to help you kind of get out of your head, rest your mind, rest your body is also a very important part of overall well-being, just as much as eating well and exercising. A lot of folks, myself included, got used to working from home during the pandemic and having a lot of extra time to exercise and just relax more. What advice do you have for us now that more of us are back in the workplace, back on the road traveling, including long daily commutes and just back to the old grind in the rat race. Yeah. Small habits, you know, little tweaks. Um, I, something I talk a lot about with people is just simplifying breakfast, lunch, you know, coming up with a routine that's suit that's realistic for their new lifestyle. You know, I think it's a chance to pay attention to, you know, what you liked about your routine from working at home, what you didn't like, you know, and for the things that you like, you know, if you really enjoyed having, 
you know, like home cooked lunches more often, you know, what are some ways to make that happen for yourself, you know, during the week, like maybe you pack up some dinner leftovers, you know, you make extra food and put that in a container to bring for lunch or, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe at home, it was harder to set boundaries with your time and your energy. So now maybe you take your commute to listen to a podcast you love, or if you're not driving, you know, if you're on a train or a bus, maybe you do get some journaling in and I get that journaling everywhere I can. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a time to be gentle with yourself if you are new in that transition. But I think just, you know, when you're on the go a lot, you know, little, little things that help you feel better, help you keep it together, help support your stable energy, stable mood, talked about blood sugar balance earlier. You know, those are all things that can be useful as you're getting back to transitioning to um, working more in an office, being on the road more for work. Little can go a long way. I'll be the first to admit, and it's not the first time I've said this on the air, but I do not miss my four-hour round-trip commute to Manhattan. <laughs> I really don't. I thought I would. And I have to go in kind of once every month or two now, and it's like, oh, I've got to go to New York. Uh, and it's yeah. 40 miles from my house. It's like a, you know, a stone's throw. But um, So I appreciate that. We talked last week that this month is National Caregiver Month. And according to the CDC, more than one in five adults reported providing care or assistance to a friend or family member in the past 30 days. One in four adults aged 45 to 64 years are caregivers compared to 18% of adults aged 65 and older. What are the implications of that statistic? I mean, when you think about how detrimental caregiver stress can be, caregiver burnout can be to an individual, you know, it's affecting not just that person, but also the people that they're interacting with, you know, and when you think about that huge of a number, you know, that's a lot of people walking around who are not taking care of themselves and not because they're just, you know, being lax about their health. I mean, they're wrapped up in caring for a loved one and it's so hard to focus on yourself when there's someone who needs you. Um, something I, I always say though, and this might, you know, and I don't mean this is like an empty phrase, but it's so important to internalize that self-care is not selfish. Even tiny things you can do to take care of yourself, you know, it helps you not just feel better yourself, but it helps you show up as the person that the people in your life need you to be, you know, because when you're better cared for, you're a better caregiver. And that trickles to interactions you have with others beyond, you know, just the person that you're caring for. So, I mean, I'm, I mean, I think a lot of people um, through the, you know, through the pandemic, it's a conversation we're having more now, unfortunately, but also fortunately, because I think there's more resources now for people who are caregivers. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, if you're dealing with caregiver stress, it's not just about you. It, it can trickle into other parts of your life and affect others as well. So we, we need to take care of each other and ourselves. And is there a tipping point where a caregiver should just throw in the towel and say, I can't do this, or I need someone else to step in and help me do this? You know, I don't think it's ever too soon to ask for help. I really, I really don't. I think, um, again, if I could go back in time, I would have definitely... Um, made myself ask for help in certain areas where I just, you know, we, we can't do it all ourselves. Um, you know, and some people will notice in different ways, you know, I, for myself, um, sleep was the big issue, the self-care issue I struggled with the most. And I think cause I was trying to do too much, but also I wasn't really giving myself any space to process all the feelings I was having. Um, you know, and I, but I think also for, for caregivers who are caring, not just for maybe like an ailing parent or a friend, but maybe they're also caring for children. You know, are there things that you can ask friends or relatives to help you with? Is there the option to hire help to kind of take a little bit off your plate? And that, that answer is going to be different for everyone. But, you know, I would say if you have some kind of aha moment or breaking point, you know, you're, you're probably, you've probably been there for a while when you need help. Um, so it's, it's never it's never too soon, but it's also never too late. I mentioned earlier that you're also a podcaster. When did you start and what's the name of your podcast? Yeah, so I started the Drama-Free Healthy Living podcast in uh, 2019. It launched, which is used to not be a long time ago. But um, yeah, that's something, you know, I... Um, you know, that you can find on anywhere you listen to podcasts, Drama-Free Healthy Living with Jess Cording. So you'll find 
a lot of interview episodes as well as different solo episodes, you know, just sharing different um, tools, tips, tricks, and just conversations with different people from the wellness world. And you also have terrific information on your website. How do people find you there? Yeah, so you can find me at jessicacordingnutrition.com. And how can they find your books? So anywhere books are sold, <laughs> you can visit my website. Um, you can also find them um, simonandschuster.com. Of course, Amazon, um, you can find them there as well. I think Target, Barnes & Noble, um, maybe your local library if they don't have it, request it. Um, I've had a lot of people do that as well. So um, lots of places. Jess, we have about two minutes left. Take us to the close with your best advice for us to be our healthiest selves, body, mind, and spirit. So, you know, I one thing I always love, and I, I wish I could remember where I first heard this was many years ago, but um, if you're going through a tough time, treat yourself like a new pet. Make sure you got that, you know, fresh food, you know, ideally balanced for blood sugar, um, clean water, you know, sunshine, sleep, and love. Those are all very important things. So treat yourself like a new pet. It's so simple. Yeah, it's up to us to execute, right? Yep. <laughs> Jess Cording, author of The Little Book of Game Changers, 50 Healthy Habits for Managing Stress and Anxiety, and The Farewell Tour, A Caregiver's Guide to Stress Management, Sane Nutrition, and Better Sleep. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with a leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.